Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is On The Grill, and I'm your host. My name is Paul from at Growing With Coda. Be sure to follow me on Instagram, at Growing With Coda, to stay dialed into the latest podcast news, and you can check out where I'm grilling up next. Now you're going to want to follow my next guest. This Massachusetts born and raised badass has been ripping up Instagram with his delicious cooks and his gritty hunting and fly fishing adventures. Given his followers an in-depth look at his wild game cooking has pushed him to a must-follow Instagram personality. This hunt-to-eat ambassador takes the utmost pride in his harvest and then has managed to mix an amazing display of cooks. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Malloy from at Rich Malloy 3. How's it going, Rich? What's up, Paul? Thanks for having me. For sure, man. A little Sunday morning chat. Not too bad, huh? Yep. Looking forward to it. What's the, uh, the weather like today in old Massachusetts? We finally have a nice 70 degree day. You know, winter in New England is about seven months long. You get tricked with spring and you don't really get one, you know, so... It goes from being like 40, you know, 35, 40 degrees and cloudy and misting all the time to boom, you get a nice like 75 degree day. So that's where we're at right now. So we're going to roll with it and spend a lot of time outside. So this is shorts and t-shirt weather for you. It's perfect, huh? Exactly. I mean, yeah, absolutely. All right, man. So uh, you're a third generation. Is this what I'm taking from the, the Rich Malloy 3? Rich Malloy 3, yep. Third generation and... Wait, the fourth generation just came last week. There you go, man. Busy. Yep, number four. Yep. The name Richard Malloy will be, Richard Edward Malloy will be 100 years old in about seven years, I think. I think my grandfather was born in 1927. So what's what's it like carrying a a name like that through a family? Well, it was kind of a no brainer. You know, that's the way I, you know, for me, it was like, I have an opportunity to continue this, you know, when you're a third, you're, you have very, you have a very strong tie to your name. To to me, it just, it it felt, I have a a big connection to that, you know, coming from that lineage, but, and then to be able to pass that on, I think was really important. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been exciting for sure to, to hand that down and to just say Richard the fourth. I mean, the kid, kid sounds like a King already, you know? The hair, the empire. Um, uh-huh. What's it? Was was your grandfather? Uh, did he grow up in that area too, or was he? Does he have a little different of a story? Massachusetts. Uh, wow. Um, down in the Cape, when we're all Massachusetts. Um, a lot of my family is from Cape Cod. I don't know if your listeners are familiar, but Cape Cod is just an offshoot of Massachusetts. It's the arm. It looks like the elbow. That's where all the lobster comes from. Um, and yeah, and then from the Cape, they brought themselves up to just a suburb of Boston. And I grew up in a town called Concord, a very historic town, revolutionary era. And um, yeah, and then I spent about 20 years in Concord and I've been in Boston for the last 12, 13 years. Right on. Yeah. Uh, what's it like growing up in Massachusetts? I know you, obviously the weather is something that's got to be a factor, but as yeah, far as- you know, it's, it's it's we get the extremes you know it's never just like the weather's the, the weather's always there and you know it's 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 never subtle it's like oh it's snowing we're getting 20 inches and then oh my god like two days later it's 70 degrees out and then it's pouring out and then it's freezing out but it won't snow it's it's very dramatic you know the, just the scale the ups and downs of the weather and um 
you know, you feel that growing up in New England, you know, and, and, you know, you can take advantage of the weather in many different ways. Living in New England is awesome where at any point you're within two to three hours from the ocean and then a mountain, you know, you have the best of both worlds living on a coast, being in California, you guys probably experienced the same thing. You get yeah. the best of both worlds. You know, I, I don't, I would never not be able to live on a coast. You know, I want, I want everything. I want ocean. I want river. I want mountain. I want field. I want it. I want it all, you know, and new England definitely gives you that. You can go up North into Acadia. You can go into the white mountains. You can go into Nantucket, the vineyard. You can get tropical Island life in new England. You go up to the Cape. What's what's Nantucket? That sounds extremely familiar. Is it like a <laughs> Nantucket or? is a bougie island right off okay. of the coast of uh, uh, Falmouth, which is in the Cape. If you take go out of Falmouth or Hyannis, I guess, and you go directly south through the Vineyard Sound. You have Martha's Vineyard, and then you have Nantucket. These two islands that I don't know what the distance is between the two, but they're very close and very very popular um summer weekend trip you take a ferry out there or if you have a friend that has a boat you can just jump on the boat with them and Martha's Vineyard now that's where a lot of the 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 high end New Yorkers go right <laughs> yeah i think that the new yorkers actually go to the hamptons on long okay. island yeah so the the hamptons are i could actually be wrong because when you live in new england you go to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket but I think in New York, you go to the Hamptons, but ah, gotcha. you know, the vineyard is great. Awesome food, Nantucket, the same thing. And it's excellent hunting out there as well. That's the, th that's another thing that a lot of people don't know about the islands off of New England is that the hunting is absolutely outstanding. The turkey population, the deer population, I'm pretty sure is the highest per s square mile in all of New England. Wow. They don't have predators. You know, there isn't a, there isn't a coyote population out there. There might not even be one coyote, you know. Right. And because that could be bad though, because you'll have a uh, surplus of deer or turkey just kind of ravaging the land, right? Yeah, you know, it's it it creates a an interesting hunting opportunity, and there aren't a lot of hunters on the islands because we're already a small population of people out here, and for somebody who lives inland right or on in massachusetts or in boston or on the cape you have hunting opportunities around you so you don't think going directly to the islands to hunt. right but and i mean that means you got to carry your gear on the ferry you got to put your truck on the ferry um it's a big thing so i've unfortunately i haven't had an opportunity to hunt on the vineyard or nantucket yet but i'm i'm crossing my fingers that i get an invite out there someday from some friends i have out there it's cool right on should be interesting yeah. We'll get into hunting a little bit more uh, a little bit later, but I want to find out uh, a little more about yourself. So obviously you have some hobbies that we'll get into later that are just awesome. Big fan of yeah. yours. Uh, but you're like I said, you, you're a dad and uh, you are a strength and conditioning coach, correct? Yep. Yep. Anything, uh, yeah. anything cool about that? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so new to me, you know, and I think that I definitely hope to show my son the world of athletics when he grows up and I can help him progress his athletic ability because of the background that I have. I've been a coach for going on 13 years now and the importance of being skilled in the weight room and understanding your body movement is 
so important and you can get a step ahead in athletics if you understand how you're more about your body and how you move and you know so I'll be introducing him to sports at a young age I mean he's 10 days old you know so there's not much my wife is actually an occupational therapist which is somebody who a pediatric occupational therapist so that's somebody who works with the development of children you know so you guys go hand in hand and yeah as far as yeah you know so she gets like the first couple of years of his life but the second he's able to start kicking a ball or throwing a ball that's all me i, I, so I take over and then he'll be gonna, in the, are you gonna be the dad out there with with the, the headlamp on showing him how to just throw the ball or are you gonna just kind of take it easy go at his own yeah i mean it's gonna i'm just gonna learn you know i i have no idea this is new for me i have five new five nieces so um I haven't really, I haven't really had the opportunity yet because they don't live as, as close as I would like to really teach a sport or teach hunting to a young kid. So I, I, I don't know what direction I'm going to go in yet. When that age is going to be, whether it's going to be time to my chest and take them through a scout in the woods looking for mushrooms or deer shit or who knows, you know. But it'll for sure happen. I mean, I'm going to give that kid all the opportunity to figure out what he enjoys, whether it's hunting, fishing, sports, reading, whatever, whatever he wants to do, I'm going to support, but I'm going to push him in the direction of hunting for sure. Right on. And he, he's going to grow up with a, with a great instructor of life, just based yeah. upon uh, your lifestyle and what you learned through your life. And, and I'm honestly carrying that name, there has to be some type of uh, uh, swagger that you, yeah, you walk you know, around with. Yeah, it's been it, it hits me all the time. We don't actually call him Richard. Richard, there's a lot of rich Richards, Ricks, Dicks, Dickies in my family. So we actually gave him a unique nickname. We actually call him Remy, R-E-M-I. Um, so his name, we, we refer to him as Remy, Remy Malloy, but his full name is Richard Edward Malloy IV. And Remy is a great name because it's actually his initials, R-E-M. Oh, perfect. And, and it's, my wife has, comes from a French background. So Remy is actually also a French name, a pretty popular French boy and girl, unisex name. So it kind of seems like a perfect fit for a nickname to kind of give him his, on his everyday, throughout his everyday life. But it is cool to, to just have that be in the background there is richard edward malloy the fourth you know we don't know i actually don't know any fourths i grew up with a fifth and besides that i don't i don't have never met anyone else who's a fourth so yeah first i I, growing up you think it's kind of funny when the kid next to you is a third or junior or second but now when you get older you realize it's a a badge of honor yeah and it's it's definitely something to take pride and to carry a name and and like you said that lineage and especially you guys all being uh native Massachusetts or Bostonians. Uh, I think it's awesome to have a namesake. Oh yeah. New Englanders. There you go. Yeah. All right, man, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Um, being that your, your hometown and, uh, Boston being a, a hub of Massachusetts on April 15th, 2013 at 2 49 PM, the city of Boston suffered from a cowardly act of terrorism, taking three lives and injuring 264 individuals. Tell me, tell me and the listeners where you were when this happened. So 
it actually took more lives than that. There were a couple deaths post marathon bombing directly related to the Sarnea brothers. Um, so we, I think that there were five total deaths. So I was, I was actually at the gym. I, I used to compete at a gym in right outside of Boston that overlooked the entire city from the West. So I had a view of the entire city and you know, you're sitting there, you're looking out the window over the entire skyline. It's awesome. And then my phone goes off. My sister calls me and she says, where are you? What are you doing? I'm like, um, the gym where I always am. She goes, the marathon was just bombed. Two bombs just went off at the marathon. You're not down there. No one you know is down there. Where's your wife? Blah, 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 all that. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, Leah, you got to be kidding me. Like, you're like, something happened. There was, it was a transformer. That didn't actually happen. You're lying. So I walk over to the windows and I could absolutely see plumes of smoke and helicopters all over the place. Um, the city was just, you could see the sirens going all over the city on the, uh, the outer, out the outskirts of Boston. You could see all the sirens and stuff of, of, um, police and et cetera, going towards the city. And it was just intense. And at that moment, I'm like, what is it? What actually happened down there? So head home. And from there, it was really the next few days where things kind of got really intense. You know, there was the actual moment that the bombs went off and thinking, oh, I know hundreds of people who are down there right now, being a weightlifting coach in the city, coaching marathon runners, friends with people who run the marathon for years. You know, it's it's the biggest day in Boston. The city shuts down. And, and Boston embraces it, right? I mean, this is a national uh, event that people from all over the, the nation and the world look forward yeah. to. And, and, and we get to enjoy the city of Boston. For this yeah, day. you know, fifteen to twenty thousand people run that race, and and since I think the the year after, I think an additional seven to ten thousand people signed up for that race. Awesome, and yeah, that just shows how strong Boston is, and how these people just get behind each other and run for each other and run for the city, and you know, it it created a really strong community, and it was scary at the time. But like Boston always does, we got through it and we learned a lot about our city, a lot about each other. Um, and it was an intense moment, you know, and absorbing that as an adult was much different than absorbing something like a 9-11 as a kid. You know, I was 13 when 9-11 happened. I didn't really know how to wrap my head around that because I was young. And being an adult and having something like that like a terrorist attack happening in a major city, I was able to look at it much differently. I was able to absorb it as an adult, which hit me a lot harder. Oh, absolutely. And especially when it's in your backyard, in the city that you love and that you call home. Uh, I think 9-11 affected everyone. But like you said, I was a senior in high school and you can't absorb everything that goes on into that. And you don't realize uh, yeah. the underlying issues as much as you would like to when you're an adult. So, uh, yeah, I could definitely see in this hitting home. But one thing that really I really loved seeing from this was the fact that local police and FBI worked together and they utilized their resources and they got those pictures out of the brothers and asked the city to help. And they did. And it happened fast. It was within 
days you know i remember sitting watching like we went into a lockdown like we are now we had a stay-at-home order by the governor and there were reports of actually it was the night before they had um they had robbed an mit police officer they took his car and they actually shot him and killed him and which was happening at night and then they went into a suburb of Boston called Watertown, if I'm remembering this right, and there was a shootout on the streets with assault weapons and with automatic weapons in a suburban neighborhood. And there was a there was a shootout, you know, and one of them got away and ran and hid inside somebody's boat that was covered for the winter still, that was wrapped for the winter. And this guy who was living there like noticed something wrong with his boat and called the authorities and they came and they got the uh the other Sarnayev brother who survived that shootout and yeah another piece to that story is the Sarnayevs actually live lived at the time less than a mile away from my house in Union Square of Somerville I live right in um, Union Square Prospect Hill area of um, the city of Somerville and they were right down the street and right after that bombing they went down and grabbed groceries from a convenience store that I drive by every single day and that hit me too I'm like there are people around me like that you know and so ever since then you know I just I look out for myself I look out for my family and friends and I always think about the people around me and you know how everyone's doing it, it really has that that day changed a lot of people in Boston it made you appreciate what you have and who who you're you're your true friends are, I think. Absolutely. Now it sounds like you you're carrying that that pride, that Boston pride, with you since that day. Yeah. And you like you learned. What about the city of Boston too? Are they still Boston strong and we still carrying this We are Boston strong, and we'll ne- we'll never not be Boston strong. I think I think David Ortiz said it said it best. So I was I was fortunate to go to the first game at Fenway post marathon bombing and. It was the place was packed. Boston strong signs everywhere. People were insane. Before the game started, both teams got onto the field, third baseline, first baseline, and David Ortiz, he is he is the unspoken mayor of Boston. And and um he comes out with a microphone and gives his little speech, and then at the end he goes, This is our Boston, this is our fucking city. And the place just erupted. Nesson didn't bleep it out, I don't think, and it was super strong. And that phrase that he said has stuck with Bostonians. Like, this is our city. It is the people's city. We are strong. We are together. And with that, we can really do a lot of great things. Yeah, I, I watched that that video in preparation of this. And, and like I said, Dave Ortiz comes out. And Boston's wearing, uh, typically, the Red Sox uniform says Red Sox in the front. And it has the Boston instead. Yeah. And David Ortiz comes out and he says, this is our fucking city and nobody going to dictate our freedom. Stay oh, strong. Thank yes. you. Yep. And nobody's going to dictate our freedom. And that is true. And he said it strong, you know, and, uh, you know, it, he is just, he is a spokesperson for our city. He is such a huge influence on so many Boston sports fan, fans and so many Bostonians in general when it was probably maybe last summer or last fall, he was shot in the Dominican and 
we thought, I mean, we didn't know what was going on. And the Red Sox stepped up. They sent their team plane down there, I think, and grabbed him out of there. And it was, we were all on the edge of our seats for a little while. And it was really emotional to think that we could have lost David Ortiz to some cowardly act. And that would have been devastating. But he's still here with us. We love him. Yeah, he's like you said. That's awesome. He's a he's a good personality. To rally around, and he's, he's that's a fun loving guy. Yep, absolutely. Uh, man, that's a great story. It, it, it like I said, it hits home, and uh, the nation was watching. I was watching intently, being an adult, and like I said, just being a sports fan as far as the uh, the gathering of the the marathon, and to have these cowards think that they could take advantage of a situation and impact it, as many lives they did. And for Boston think, to set the tone, I don't think people say, understand how I don't think people understand how many people come into Boston for that day. It is twenty six miles of people just lining the streets, packed uh, up and down from from where it starts in Hopkinton. I'm pretty sure it's Hopkinton all the way through Newton, past Boston College, into this heart of the city, into the Back Bay. It is just packed with people and um where the attack happened was right at the finish line where it is really really dense thousands and thousands of people just standing there and it, it um yeah we got through it though yeah terrible and and it's this terrible situation but i think the city of boston the state of massachusetts definitely stepped up to the plate and are holding down to their values and they're not going to let anyone dictate their freedom and just be a badass place. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Man, thanks for sharing that story. That was awesome. Going to switch the gears a little bit. Um, I know you're a big sports guy. I'm a big sports guy. Uh, And Boston sports, man, it's definitely – Definitely a force to be reckoned with. I feel like based on the state size and the state population, Massachusetts has to be pound for pound one of the best sports states. Uh, what's going on? Is is the water uh, juice with creatine? or? <laughs> well, it's not called Boston to sports fans. It's called the City of Champions. So um, we are very, very cocky when it comes to our sports. Now, the one thing that we don't have is college sports. It's all professional. We have great hockey, actually, Boston College, BU, Northeastern, Harvard. Our hockey is, is and UMass, I won't leave them out, um, definitely a force to be reckoned with for sure. But our professional sports really is, they run the city, you know. Um, we were privi- privileged and lucky to have Tom for Tom Brady for 20 years and what he brought to an entire region. It's not just Boston. It's an entire region. We have Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Mass, Rhode Island, Connecticut, who are just like adoring our sports and they give it back to us, you know, with championships (laughs) and not only championships, conference championships, playoff appearances, every single October, it's something, you know, during the hockey season in July, we're watching playoff hockey you know, the Celtics are always, always doing something. The Red Sox have won four championships since 2003. Um, it's wild. It is wild to sit back and be like, whoa, we're in this again. And you kind of just shake your head and you're like, all right, let's do it. You know, we're going to stay up all night long because the Red Sox are playing the Dodgers and that game's not going to get over till one in the morning, you know, or, you know, and just the support is strong and it's, it's, it's so cool. 
Yeah. yeah, it's that's one of the perks of being on the West Coast is the games finish early, but yeah, you don't realize those East Eastern times until you think about it. But, uh, yeah, Boston sports is is definitely city I mean, of champions. Athletes. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a title that they hold proud. Uh, the the fan base is awesome too. Like you said, you have uh, other states just cheering, but you you never see a place not sold out or uh, yeah. uh, they're enthusiastic. I could imagine if uh, an opposing team, uh, a, a person wearing an opposing team's jersey comes in, that, that they're going to get some good dirty looks. Yeah, you know, Patriots fans. A lot of times they're called to call pink hat fans because they're not the rowdiest bunch of people. You know, they they. The, the tickets are really expensive so that the stadium does get filled with a lot of people who are just there because they can spend three, four hundred dollars on the best seats, you know. So uh, there was a time where Brady was like pleading with the fans to get looped up before the game and he took a lot of flack from it. But I think since then there were a few years of us really giving it to the other team. And um, <laughs> yeah, just being a Pats fan, I think we'll stick with them for now is. Uh, it's going to be different going forward. I think that the the there's no such thing as a Patriots bandwagon fan. Sure. You know, because if you're a fan, you're getting championships and you stay like that. You've, they've never been bad, right? So it's like, who knows what's going to happen this season with Brady being gone and Jared Stidham taking over. If it's him, who knows? Um, We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with the ticket sales if the if the prices actually drop. Because getting to Gillette's not a not a cheap day. You know, parking's expensive. Tickets aren't get going and watching a Pats game at Gillette Stadium. It's an expensive day for a family. So, so um, fill me in on how this goes down. Um, the Celtics play downtown, correct? And then um, uh, I can't. The Red Sox is that all in Boston? Yeah. Yep. So. The Red Sox play at Fenway, which is kind of like right in the heart of heart of the city. And the Celtics and the Bruins both play at um, TD Garden, right. which, which is kind of in the north end, near the north end of Boston, right on the water. And they play together, and so they just change that stadium or that arena over whenever there's a Sox, or I mean, whenever there's a Celtics or a Bruins game. They also do concerts and stuff there. But at any moment, you know. There could be a Bruins game on a Friday af- night and then a Celtics game on a Saturday afternoon. And then you got the Red Sox going at Fenway Park. And then all of a sudden, maybe it's it's crazy. I mean, there's always something going on when sports are going. It's it's an exciting time because there's always something like I would say May is probably May. June is busy because you have the playoffs. You have the Bruins playoffs, which they're in like every year. And so the, the the city's just going crazy thinking about that. And then if the Celtics are in it, you know, you could have the Celtics and the Bruins at the same time playing in the conference championship, turning TD Garden over every single night for a different sport, for a different championship. You Dude, know? Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy how they, uh, obviously, the Staples Center in LA, they got the Kings, Clippers, and the Lakers. Right. And they're doing some weird, like, yeah. crazy stuff. So, uh, like you said, yeah, you can get amped up pretty good, especially if the basketball and the hockey teams are all pushing for that same uh, playoff spots and stuff. Right. So that, But how is Gillette located towards uh, actually being close to Boston and, and like you said, getting out to, to that stadium? Directly south of the city is a town called Foxborough, 
So they just, I don't know why they decided to put the stadium out there. I think back in the fifties, they were in Boston or maybe Cambridge, the, the Patriots played, but then they moved in into Foxborough and it was called Foxborough stadium when the, the crafts bought it in the nineties or late eighties. And, um, they moved down to Foxborough and that for them just seems like the best choice. I don't know why, but it's, it's about 40 minutes without traffic, 40 or so minutes directly South from Boston. Oh, that's it's, not not bad. Bad, it's not a bad ride, but they're not in Boston. They're in Foxborough and um, it's great. You know, the crafts have just built an entire city out there of shops and movie theaters, and bowling and, so many different restaurants and event spaces and you know Gillette Stadium that area out there is just a huge huge um area now it's it's pretty wild that's cool i mean they're giving back putting yeah. jobs in the community and and definitely pumping that area up it's always weird when uh like the 49ers they move from San Francisco and they move to Santa Clarita it's like a 2 hour drive from San Francisco and you're still holding the title of San Francisco. So uh, I always thought that was weird. And where Candlestick was, where it used to be, it was a beautiful area, but they wanted to build apartments and uh, just make some money off that that the real estate. So, But yeah. it's glad to hear that the, the crafts took, but they're they putting in that money back in the, into the city. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in the, the Revolution, our soccer team, that, you know, there's a decent fan base out here. It's not huge. I think it would become bigger if they were to move into Boston. There has been talk about the crafts moving the soccer team into the city, Cambridge or Everett, um, which is Everett is another city right next to Boston. Boston is is one city, but then we have all these little cities right outside of it that we kind of just say are Boston, but yeah. um, Everett's another little city right outside of Boston that there was some talk about the revolution. That's the crafts uh, uh, MLS soccer team. Man, they are just monopolizing yeah. boston powerhouses for sure uh how do you think tom brady and gronk are gonna do in tampa i think gronk is gonna have an outstanding season i think brady's gonna have his gronk numbers when he's throwing to gronk there's just something about that team's style I don't know if Brady is going to be able to adapt to unless they change unless they change and make it Brady's offense not Bruce. I think it's Bruce Arians out there, right? Yes. Um, unless they change and make that offense something that Brady can adapt to, I don't know if they're going to do well. Brady cannot throw a deep ball to Mike Evans. That's all Mike Evans can do is run straight and catch the ball. Brady's. It's not like Brady has the arm strength to throw to a player like that anymore. He needs a guy to run across the middle of the field like a Julian Edelman. He needs somebody to hit in the middle on a seam route like a Rob, Gronkow Rob Gronkowski, right? Um, I don't know if they're going to win the division. I could see them getting a couple more wins, maybe 10 wins, but the Saints are going to run that division. You know, you can't stop Michael Thomas and, and Drew Brees. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really hard to watch him and Gronk this year in a different uniform, but I'm still going to wear my Brady jersey every Sunday. So, yeah, I'm still it's, a Brady fan. I'm still it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see what, uh, TB12 got has left and what he can do in a new city. So good for him. You know, I, I bet I bet it's a tough decision. 
It's not that yeah. hard when you're making 25 million a year. Let's be serious. Yeah, I I doubt he's gonna do it for the money. The guy yeah. doesn't need any more money. Uh, but definitely, uh, you know, when he, he's given so much to the city uh, and and won as many championships as he as he's done, it's gotta be tough to walk away. But um, hey, make a new little chapter for your life before you hang it up and see what you can do. Yeah, I never thought that I would have a second favorite team but i guess i'm a tampa bay buccaneers fan go figure hey see there might be some magic who knows all right buddy let's get into your big guns fly fishing i'm extremely interested in this portion of what you do Uh, from your page i see that you do do other uh, types of fishing deep sea fish uh but i feel like fly fishing has to be one of the more intimate styles of fishing um, tell me about this. Did you learn this from your father? Uh, how, how'd you get into fly fishing? So growing up in Concord, we have a great fly shop called, um, Concord Outfitters and growing up started out on spin and then just slowly trickled my way into that fly shop. And the owner there, Andy really kind of like pressured me into picking up a fly rod and maybe not going full bore, but just pick it up, learn how to cast it, play around with it. Here's a fly rod, go have fun. There's a river behind the shop. You know, I hated it. I Let me stop you there because we got into this a little bit. We talked about spin versus fly fishing. Yeah. Uh, spin reel versus fly reel. What, yeah. What's the big difference? So I think the approach is, is the biggest difference. In my head, I think that fly fishing the reason why I fly fish is because it's it's so much harder. To me, it's harder. Spin fishing is easier to me, and I don't want to do easy things. I like challenges. I like going out and, and catching a fish and thinking to myself, wow, like that was really hard. I am, I, I'm super fulfilled right now. I, I may have not caught a fish in two or three outings. And it's just significantly more rewarding when you get it and you understand it. Spin fishing can get a little clunky at times with the gear and the size of the gear, and there's not much finesse involved. Now, I have spin fishing buddies who are going to kill me for saying this, but I think that spin fishing sometimes is the easy way out. And it's hard to catch big fish on flies. It really is. You know, we're limited by distance. You know, you can launch a plug a huge nine inch uh surf pl- casting plug you know however far you know and you, you got people catching 30 to 40 pound striped bass on these huge plugs you know and i'm sitting there just casting away into the water you know 50 to 75 feet plus in front of me you know and you know you're limited you're limited by the size of your gear you know and it's just it's so much harder but it's significantly more rewarding for sure and that's why i like doing it so this was something that you took on yourself or or, uh, did you have a friend or this wasn't uh, your dad you and your dad growing up taking out your your fly fly fishing gear and, and just putting the time in my dad definitely introduced me to fishing at a very young age with you know your standard uh kids spin fishing gear and then from that morphed into my brother and i biking around our town during the summer with all of our spin fishing gear with big giant spinner baits and hitting all the little bass ponds and that was so much fun but then it got to a point for me where i wanted to experience a little bit more i didn't like standing in the same spots all the time and fishing for the same fish all the time and that's where 
fly fishing in the ocean really kind of like that's what was so attractive is that i was constantly seeing different fish the the landscape was constantly changing due to the weather and fishing flats and you're in this beautifully crystal clear water seeing these huge striped bass swim through that won't touch your bait because it's a little fly or it's a big fly and you're not presenting it correctly and it's a challenge and again that's that is what the most attractive part is to me is that it's hard and i want things to be difficult i don't want if it was easy it would be boring so most of this is all saltwater fishing i do a lot of saltwater fishing and right now we're we're getting into our saltwater season because the stripe the striped bass are now here Um, they migrate and they usually start showing up around the vineyard a few weeks ago, like beginning of April, the, the first schoolies might start trickling in. And then by the middle of May, they are in Boston Harbor. They are on the North Shore of Massachusetts, up in Essex and Ipswich. And they're just all over the place. And that first couple waves, I mean, you could have 100 to 200 fish days. And they all hit the same on a fly. When you're fishing on a fly, a 15-inch striper strikes just as hard as a 30-inch striper. They all feel the same. And that's why fly fishing for big striped bass is just, it's awesome. It is so much fun. Are you just going on the weekends? Are you just trying to pump out any any free time you got during the uh, fly fishing season or or whenever the the stripers are hitting? Is this just like you're waking up before, going after work? For bass, for striped bass, um, because I'm so close to the water in Boston, I can slip out whenever. You know, I can go in the middle of the day. I can uh, time it with an incoming tide. Uh, depending on where I'm fishing, I want to play the tide a little bit, and I can. You can go and I can go and fish for striped bass right now, five minutes from my house. Or the the bigger commitment is the trout. If I want to go fish for trout, then I need to, to commit more time because I got to drive two hours west. And if I, if I want to get into like really good class of fishing, um, you're staying in Massachusetts when you're driving two hours for trout. Yeah. Two hours West. Yeah. Going into the, the trout streams out there in the Berkshires, the Deerfield river, the Swift river, the Housatonic or not the, the, the Hoosick river. I have a friend, Tom, who is just, he, I pretty much do whatever he says when it comes to trout fishing, because it, it's it's a really nerdy sport and I don't like nerding out and I have friends who are, who know way more about trout fishing on the fly than I do. So I kind of like let them guide me a little bit. And, but I really don't like to geek out when it comes to trout fishing on the fly, because that's when it becomes, that's when it stops being fun. You know? So, so what's the difference between when you're fly fishing uh, saltwater and then freshwater is, is it that big of a difference? huge difference the size of your gears is is you have completely different gear you have um you know i could be using a three to five weight fly rod for trout uh, one day and then the next day i'm fishing for striped bass on a eight or a nine weight you know and then you could go up from that and fish for shark on the fly with a 14 yeah you know or 15 weight and the bigger the fish get, the bigger the, the gear get, you know, and then you got some, some people who like fishing for striped bass on like three and four weights, which is just, that's not, I don't think that that's a very ethical approach because it puts the fish into a lot of stress. But, um, I'm usually trout fishing with a five weight and I'm striper fishing with a nine weight fly rod. So the size, of the, the, the size of the gear is different. The size of the flies are different. A trout might hit a fly. That's the size of a, the, your, 
your fingernail and uh, striped bass is going to hit a fly that's tied with deer hair that's eight inches long. And so it's, I got two different setups, one for freshwater, one for saltwater. And it's, uh, where do you feel like your passion is at more or something that you feel like you need to accomplish more in either salt or fresh? I'm definitely a better saltwater fly fisherman than I am a freshwater fly fisherman. I think the, there's, there's something about being on a flat up in the North shore of Massachusetts and just seeing like a huge school of a thousand stripers swimming by you. And are you going to get one to turn to that fly or are you going to get 30 to turn to that fly, you know, and just playing the sun, playing the wind, playing your position, making it's it to me, that's more like hunting saltwater fly fishing is more like hunting than, than the, the trout fishing on the fly trout fish fishing on the fly some of the most of the time i can't really see the fish you know and you're sort of just blind casting and you're kind of sitting there you know running your fly through different uh parts of the water hoping that something comes up and i can appreciate that and it's pretty and i i, I do love it it's just it's not as exciting to me as saltwater fly fishing um and the window for saltwater fly fishing is much smaller than the window for freshwater. You know, freshwater, you can fish freshwater fish in Massachusetts year round. You know, um, you can freshwater fly fish in January. Saltwater, there's a window of when the bass are here. It's usually the best times are like May and June and then again in September. And not to say that July and August aren't good. They're just not as good as those first uh, the May, June and September. That Those runs are just incredible. A lot of fish in the city. Who, now, who's making this switch uh, as far as like someone's fishing from off a, a shoreline or a dock and actually wanting to take that, that next jump and, and, and go into fly fishing? Because it just seems like, it, like I said, it's, it's that more intimate. It's that more challenging. You're in the water. You're, you're, you're up close and personal to the fish. You're in their environment. I mean, who, who's making this switch? Is it someone who just wants to connect better with what they're doing or they just want a better challenge? Well, it's all relative. The way you connect with your sport is all relative. I can't say that somebody who spin fishes isn't as connected to the water and the, in nature as, as much as I am just because I'm on spin fishing. It's just spin, um, fly fishing. I connect much more. It's just much more relaxing than lugging around clunky spin gear. Yeah. But for some people doing that is the way is how they connect. You know, you have to be willing to fail. If you're fly fishing, you got to be willing to fail a lot when you're fly fishing. And that turns people away, right? That's what gets people, you know, the, the struggles of getting knots and not knowing how to cast and seeing other fly fishermen around you with these beautiful loops and launching their flies. And you're sitting there for the first time looking like an idiot. You got to be willing to go through that. And it's, it is really hard. But once you get through that, it's, it's, to me, there's nothing like it. It's, um, it's not like, like hunting when you're hunting nobody's watching you when you're when you're fly fishing you have there, there's a lot more pressure i feel because there are people around you and it's the learning curve is hard it's everybody knows how to cast a spin rod because you've been doing it since you were five if you're into the sport fly fishing is a whole new skill it is it is not anything like what you've done in the past so you have to be willing you really have to be willing to fail because you will fail and but once you once you get past that it's 
it really is an incredible sport, but I can't say that, that people who spin fish don't connect to the water the way I do, because they, I know that they do. I know a lot of people who only spin fish, who it's their life. It's their passion. Just the way that, you know, fishing fly fishing for me is my life and my passion, you know? Right. Right. And I can kind of see that technique that you need for fly fishing, uh, kind of have to put you in a, in a mood or state of mind where you're not bringing any, any outside influences that maybe you had a bad day at the house or at work or anything, because in the end, that's going to, uh, be a flaw in your technique or you, you need that technique to, to stand behind and actually, uh, get, get the cast you want. Or, or if you're, you're being impatient, you're not going to get the results that you want. Yeah. It's a very technical sport. You got to kind of like, let your your muscle memory take over once you sort of start getting it you know it, it can become pretty therapeutic you know especially on the rivers you know learning how to to mend and drift and do all that um can be pretty therapeutic you can space out and fly fishing before you blink and you're like whoa where did the last two hours go you know and um that's the spot that you for me that's where i like getting into where it just becomes i don't want to say I become one with the fly rod or one with the river, but when you really just let it become an extension of your arm, you know what I mean? And you're, you're allowing, like I said before with muscle memory, you're allowing that muscle memory to take over. And that's the spot that I like to get to when I'm fishing is just, it's, I'm not thinking I'm just doing it. But when I have those external distractions and, you know, I'm thinking about things or it, it, it can have an impact for sure, because it's not as peaceful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And this is something that you want to do to, to, to bring that peace in your life. And, and, uh, it's definitely a, a good time. So, um, like I said, I can kind of relate to, especially in your, you're a cook cooking guy, but if you bring that external distractions, it reflects into your cook. Cause you're bringing that, that energy to that cook and, and, uh, I'm sure it can relate just to, to fishing as well or any hobby that you're passionate about. You don't want those uh, external distractions. Right. Absolutely. I think that it can really, t- it can really give you a, a, a big step. Can, you can really take a big step back if you let, if you let your body absorb all that stuff for sure. Absolutely. All right. I want to talk about uh, what you're carrying and um, when you go out into the water, I, I seen your pictures, you're just loaded up with your, your waders and, you got like a box in front of you. What's what's all going on right there? So I usually, if I'm going, oh, we'll, we'll we'll stick with saltwater. If I'm saltwater fly fishing, I usually bring onto the water. I'll bring one fly rod. I always have two or three backups, right? Because gear does break, and it sucks when it breaks, but it, it does happen. Um, couple backup fly rods. I have multiple different types of fly lines, depending on what style or what fly I'm using. I might have a heavy fly line. I might have a fly line that suspends in the water. I might have a fly line that floats. And then I have a line that sinks. I have a line that sinks fast. I have a line that sinks slow. Um, If I'm trying to get into a depth of 15 to 20 feet, I have a line for that. If I'm fishing flats where I'm only fishing in two feet of water, you know, so I have multiple different types of lines for whatever style of saltwater fly fishing I'm, I'm, I'm doing. And then I have tons of different fly boxes, but I usually break all those down into one small box that I carry with me. Um, I could have crabs, sand eels, um, flat wing flies, flies that look like uh, shrimps, um, a little bit of everything I have. I buy 
my flies from local fly tires too. A lot of my friends are big time fly tires that I I love to support them and help them out and really try to only use their flies and they're it's awesome. Um, what else am I bringing out onto the water with me? I got my waders, I got my boots, I got a knife, I got uh, my pack, right? I got sun protection. It's it's the big thing though is is using having a fly box that has um a variation of different flies and then like maybe your fly rod and one extra line you don't need all those extra lines but i would say for somebody who's getting into the sport having a fly rod with an intermediate line um that's that's a line that suspends under the water that's a good place to start and then just a couple small flies right yeah you sound loaded down and and you're just ready to anything you can handle out there in the water i'm kind of a gear whore when it comes to saltwater fly fishing i do i do have a lot um if you tell me to buy it i'll probably buy it <laughs> hey better to be over prepared <laughs> right what's a common mistake most fly fishermen are making or a, a beginner fly fisherman is making common mistake uh not letting yourself fail and thinking you're better than you are because most fly fishermen are really bad at fly fishermen, fly fishing, right? You need to accept the fact that you might not know how to cast and you got to take a step back and you might need to hire a casting coach. You might need to ask a friend, hey, how do I do this? Why does my cast look like this? Why is this doing that? I ask so many questions and you need to ask questions and that's the only way you're going to learn. There are people who have been saltwater fly fishing their entire lives in Massachusetts, you know, and you can ask and one of the old timers for a tip and that you could run with that. I think that the cast, the saltwater fly cast is, can be pretty aggressive, you know, because that's the one where you see the line just loading way behind you. And then you shoot that line way out in front of you. And it's this big theatrical thing. And when you try to do that and you don't know how to do that, that's when you break gear. That's when you get hit in the head with a back, uh, hit in the back of the head with a fly. Um, That's when you snap your rod. It's, you have to be willing to ask questions and, and willing to fail. And the people who think that they're bigger than that are the ones that are never going to get better. And that sure. goes, that's true with everything. That's true with hunting. That's true with, with cooking. That's true with fly fishing. All my hobbies, you have to be willing to absorb information from the people that you look up to and the people that are just better than you. You know, my, my freshwater fly fishing friend, um, I hammer him with questions the entire time we're on the water. I'm always asking, why are we choosing this run? Why am I choosing this fly? Why is this size tip it matter? You know, not that I, I, I don't think that that stuff is the most important things, but I still want to know and I still want to learn, you know, I want to learn where his head's at. Absolutely. And, and like I said, to be able to humble yourself and get that information out of someone who that you look up to or who could be mentoring you in an area that you want to grow in is, is key. And, and, and it works in all facets of life. So uh, that's great. I mean, you've had a success, success in fishing and you still allow yourself to be a student of the art and always learn from each time you step out in the water and yep. get better. And now you'll be able to pay it forward yeah, exactly. for uh, Mr. Remy here. Yeah, you become a better educator for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's get into your hunting, buddy. Uh, uh, not hunting buddy, but it's good if you're hunting. All right. Um, now, I know, the one thing that I've seen from your page 
that that stuck out to me was uh, this particular picture that you posted on your feed. Your feed, um, your hand is what looks like to be on a white-tailed deer, and you can see the point of impact on the deer. It's a very powerful, powerful picture. You don't show the size of the deer. You don't. You're not advertising anything. Your hand and a deer and a point impact. But more importantly, you go on to say in the post that, and I quote or paraphrase, uh, I think about this moment constantly, taking an animal's life and why I do it. It's still the hardest thing I've ever done, but I refuse to stop. Hashtag hunt to eat. Tell me about this post. So if you notice on my page, I very rarely actually show my deer that I harvest. I'll show it in a different way. You know, I don't want, I'm not, I'm also not shooting massive bucks every year. Sure. If I shot Colossus, the deer on my page, I would absolutely show my followers him, but I don't find it necessary for me to be sitting there gripping and grinning a doe by the ears. That's not why I hunt. Um, it is incredibly hard to kill something. It is very, very hard to kill something. And I get asked a lot by my followers how how I got into hunting, how can they get into hunting. And the very first question I ask them is, do they have the ability to kill something, to end something's life, a large animal's life? Can you turn off the switch and go primal and kill something? And I've stopped a lot of people right there and they go, I don't know. I've never thought about that. I'm like, well, that's hunting. That's, that's what you're doing. You are killing something. And it's hard. Killing things are hard. But when I'm doing it, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not thinking about killing. I'm thinking about it's just the, my primal nature takes over. And it's actually after the fact that it really hits me. And I understand what I've done. And I'm able to absorb what I've done a lot better. Um, it's hard. Hunting is hard. Killing is hard. And that's, uh, that's one of the most important questions to ask yourself if you are, if you're a new hunter is whether or not you can actually end something's life, because that's why you're there. That's why you're putting in all that time over the summer. That's why you're climbing trees. That's why you're clearing shooting lanes. That's why you're practicing on the 3d range. That's why you're doing it. You know, and some people like that process and they like buying the gear and wearing the camo and going to the shooting events and going to the total archery challenge, but they've never shot a deer. And when that moment comes, are they ready? Are you ready to kill something? You know, and that's the biggest thing to accept is whether or not you're actually going to be able to end a large animal's life. And it's something that I've, I've accepted. It's not easy. Um, I don't, I don't enjoy killing animals, but, um, it's instinct. It's instinct for me. And I, I just see it as a, a way of life and something that I'll never, ever stop doing. Uh, I love how you, 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 you put the hardest question on anyone asking about hunting first, because at the end of the day, that's what it is. You're taking an animal's life yeah. that at that moment, didn't know what was going on. And like you said, you're training yourself every day. You're putting in the work and you want to be the best you can because you can give that, that animal a, a quick and, and as painless death as, yeah. as needed. But I think that the more important part of this post, it shows 
the amount of respect that hunter a hunter has for an animal. I think the mainstream America gives hunters a bad reputation, but hunters are the most opposite and of of that of uh, being uh, the most environmentally sound people that you ever come across. They know about the animal, uh, and it, it's 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 actually disheartening because. They care so much about what they do. They care so much about the animal, and 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 it's just it's just a bad rep that the hunters get. They're some of the the nicest and so some of the most uh, in tune people you ever meet. So, but like you said, the the big thing is is being able to to get that kill shot and and pay your respects to this animal. Uh, I. I've changed my stance on, on, on killing. I joined in the service and I was 18 years old. Um, and I, it, it was at a time after nine 11 and I was ready to go. I was going to do anything I needed to do. Um, and I was charged and no questions asked, but now it's like, I take a step back and there there's consequences to actions and, and there's definitely, uh, a thought process now. Whereas when I was 18, I didn't give a fuck. I was just ready to go. Right. So um, I think it's great you showed that side. You're not gripping and grinning. You're you're showing a side that that people don't maybe see from all these uh, trophy kills. So uh, man, it's an awesome post. Yeah, you know the process, the post kill process is sometimes it's it is the hunt. You know, you drag that you 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 field dress that animal. You drag it through the woods. You throw it in your truck. You hang it in your backyard. You skin it. You butcher it. You eat it. Like killing it is just a small small piece to hunting and and learning all the other pieces involved besides just taking a shot into a deer's lungs or heart there's so many other factors that's why the the entry the, the barrier of entry it, it's such a difficult sport to get into but once you're there and you have the patience to learn and absorb once you get there there's there's nothing like it there really isn't it's um it's an emotional sport it's, I get sad sometimes after I kill an animal, once the adrenaline has worn off, you know, that I, there's a, there's a relationship between an animal and a hunter that somebody who's not, somebody who's a non-hunter will never understand that I'll sit in my backyard and I'll kind of like look at my deer hanging upside down. And once that adrenaline wears off, I'm like, wow, I did this again. I did it again. And I'm, I'm going to eat that animal. And I'm going to feed my family with that animal and I'm going to eat it year round. And I am proud of that. And I, I hate the fact that I killed it, but I love everything else. Absolutely. And it's well said. And you're talking about a group of people being a hunter that are playing by the rules and happy to pay any governing fees, any governing fees to help support and sustain, uh, this, this way yeah. of life. You yeah. Know, we're, and, we're, we're pumping money into this industry and into conservation, just pumping. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and people don't understand that they're like, you, yes, you do have to take the animal's life, but there has to be a certain balance. If you had deer overpopulating an area, uh, running out to the streets, uh, allowing or making people get into car accidents, like it's a big deal. Or what if they're just eating the garden you just planted uh, free roaming, you know, yeah. in your backyard. Like, and anti-hunters are just just very uneducated people and very narrow-minded people. Um, and those deer are going to die any either way. You know, they're going to starve themselves to death. They're going to get hit by cars. They're going to get killed by coyotes. Um, 
or they're going to be hunted and fed by or then they're or they're going to feed us you know absolutely absolutely and it's such a, a good meat a quality meat and just it's lived off the land its entire life and it's 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 lived an abundant life and those hunters are making sure that it's a deer that is mature and 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 uh that it's it's had its time and it's at its peak to eat and and um it's ready to sustain a family through a whole year of of feeding so yeah you know it gives me energy the the the, the venison itself is just such an incredible meat like it gives me different kind of energy. And I think that that's because it's clean. It's, uh, it comes from my hands. My hands are the only hands that have ever touched that meat ever. It's amazing when you think about that, you know, like think about when you buy a chicken from the grocery store, how much processing went into that. How did they fill that chicken? How many people touched that chicken before it went onto your plate? You know, I don't want to know the answer to that. I don't, I don't. Um, What's what's more gratifying to you as an individual, the fly fishing or the hunting? Oh, the hunting, absolutely the hunting. Fly fishing is is a hobby. Fly fishing to me is a hobby, and and it's a hobby that I love and I'm passionate about it. But I don't need to do it. It's a luxury to me. I have to hunt. I have to hunt. It it's it feeds me. It feeds my family. I love love serving venison to, to my friends who come over. Um, it is. I get emotional just thinking about like feeding venison to a friend of mine who's never had it before. And they look at me and they go, Oh my God, like this tastes amazing. And then they realize that I harvested that animal and it, it blows their mind. I can't tell you how many people I've influenced to either shop for their meat organically or sign up for a CSA just from t- not because I've told them to, but simply from just serving them my venison. Absolutely. Um, and, and hunting I- is, is, I I have to do it because all right, it it's so much more a part of me and I feel like I I'm I've lost something if I don't go and do it. Fly fishing I I I can pick and choose when I kind of want to go. You know, I'm like, "Oh, that sounds like a fun thing to do. I'm going to go have fun and I'm going to go fly fishing today." Sure. Right. And I don't eat the fish that I catch. I release everything that I yeah. catch. I'm a catch and release fly fisherman. Um, and hunting, I wouldn't necessarily say sitting in a tree stand 20 feet up on November 15th when it's 20 degrees out with a strong wind. I wouldn't call that fun. It's not fun. It sucks. It sucks a lot. But for some reason, we do it. And, and the end result, it's, it's the fact that I still have 150 pounds of venison in my deep freezer. It, like from the work that I did back in November, it, it that's that's why I'll never stop, and that's, that's, why me, that's why to me I would I would if somebody had asked me if, if is it hunting or is it fishing for you, it's absolutely it's hunting. When you serve up your venison, I imagine and you have guests over, like you said, that have never tasted venison, and. You have a second, a split second before they take, the, take that bite and then they eat it and you see their face just change from like, this is the best meal, this is the best protein or, or meat I've had. Are you reflecting about that deer? And just, there has to be a sense of pride that is just, it is overwhelming. 
Right. It, it is. It is very overwhelming. And I'm, I'm pretty picky about who I serve my venison to. If I feel like somebody's not going to appreciate it or absolutely, I, I might not serve it to them. Or if they don't really understand the work that went into it, I feel like I'm respecting that animal every time I eat it. I think about that animal. I think about how the, the moment of me seeing it or hearing it come into a shooting lane or following the blood trail or you know, recovering the animal, you know, the whole process, I'm just reviewing it in my head. It's impossible to not think about when you're eating it. I had a venison burger last night. Um, and I just found myself spacing out when I was done, like just reminiscing about the hunting season, not thinking about the kill, not thinking about a blood trail or something savage like that. You know, that, that's not, to me, that's not the, the highlight of hunting, but it's just the, the, the entire part of it every little aspect pulling up my truck into my parking spot walking to my tree stand hearing a leaf crunch you just i miss it so much you know it's may we only have a few more months to go and uh, i can't just can't wait to get back up you feel the adrenaline pump or your your hands get a little clammy I, i i think about it all the time literally every time i eat it you know when i walk downstairs and i see my the my the my heads that i have out here i'm like oh it's coming up it's coming up uh, do you hunt all seasons or just deer? Um, I hunt deer, turkey. Um, I'm mostly a white-tailed deer hunter. We have a we have a small bear population in Massachusetts. Uh, it's it's growing, um, but really for me, it's deer and turkey. But I'm, I'm I really am a white-tail bow hunter. That is you're a trad bow hunter, correct? Sorry, uh, you're a, you hunt with a trad bow, correct? Uh, compound. Okay, I, I do Matthews Vertex. Okay, gotcha. Um, same for the turkey as well. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, what are some of your more? I have mad respect for people that hunt with a longbow or traditional archery. That to me is just, if you're good at that and you can harvest an animal with that, I bow to you. That is just such an incredible skill. If I ever had the confidence to go out into the woods with a piece of equipment like that, I, I, I don't know. I that is, it's it's that is an incredible incredible skill. It almost seems like a natural progression for you though as far as I mean the fly fishing is probably one of the more primal ways besides actually spear fishing a fish. Uh I I think you're probably due for a, a trad run here. Yeah, you know, I just don't know if you got to think about the ethics involved too. Like if you're not good, if you're there is a risk for in, injuring an animal as well. You know, if I put my Matthews, if I put that pin into the spot, right spot, that deer is done. My arrow is going through that animal and sticking into the ground. That animal is running less than 50 yards and dropping. I can't say that confidently about traditional gear. Now, some people are have an incredibly high skill level to where their shot placement is perfect every time and they don't have to worry about that and they're there it's much more intuitive for them but i don't know if if right now i don't have the confidence to to ever walk into the woods with traditional gear i and it would take years and years for me to develop that confidence absolutely like you said that that's it's an ethical choice where you want to be the best that you could be to allow this this deer or the harvest to be uh to be as in least amount of pain as possible right right you know it's already kind of you're in kind of a gray area already with a compound bow because the argument would be well why not just walk out there with a gun and blow its fucking head off you know and 
uh, that to me just seems again too easy. Yep. You know, walk into the woods with a big gun and start blasting at animals from two hundred yards away. Yeah, that doesn't seem like fun to me. It seems like that is fun to other people, and I can respect that because we're all going out there for the same thing. Sure. We want meat. We want to be a part of that animal. We want to be with nature. We want to be out there. We want to smell the smells and hear the sounds, you know, and the end game, the end result, that's what we're all there for. But it's the approach that I, I don't know if I'll ever, I've never killed an animal with a gun ever. 20 years of hunting, never done it. That's awesome. And like I said, uh, your approach to it, anyone's approach to it is what they want it to be. But the end result, as long as it's ethical and you're doing the best you can and you're uh, appreciating that, that meat the best you can. I, I think that's in the, at the end of this, this is, that's what it's about. Um, what are some of your more memorable hunts? Oh, geez. More memorable hunts. Well, my first hunt ever, I think I was, uh, I was 10 or 11. The bow that I had was this big, big giant clunky PSC. The thing weighed like four, like 40 pounds. Um, I was in a tree stand in a tree that was like, I don't, it was like a sapling. It was so small. Like every time the wind blew, I could feel myself rocking back and forth. Right. And everybody remembers their, their first hunt. And it was just this, it was this opportunity that I had that I didn't really understand. I didn't really even think I would have to make this decision, but this doe walked in with her two fawns and I'm like, Whoa, this doe is with her fawns right now. I didn't even think that that could happen. I did, I'm totally unprepared for this situation. What do I do? And and I ended up taking the shot and I don't usually don't take that shot anymore, but it kind of shows how you can change ethically as you grow as a hunter. Whereas the first year I shot was a doe with two fawns. And now I probably wouldn't even think about taking that shot anymore. Yeah. Um, and I was with my dad. I, I was with the guy who got me into hunting. Um, it was an incredible experience. Um, yeah, I was probably 11 years old, 12. I, I, I don't know. I was young. And um, I don't remember much about the recovery. I don't remember much about... I just remember taking the shot. And, you know, I wish I could go back and, like, tell my young self that what you just did is a... is 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 something that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. Cause I didn't treat the meat the same way that I do now when I was younger, it was really just shoot an animal, have somebody help me process it, give away most of the meat to the hunters at the hunting club, and then take a couple packs of burger meat back home with me, you know, and a lot of it would just end up freezer burnt over the course of the year. Yeah. You know, I really, it took me probably 10 more years to understand what I was really doing. And the results that I was that I was getting, where it, it was gold. You know, I was getting this meat every single year. I was shooting one to three deer with a bow. You know, and and I really made a commitment to myself to to not just understand the hunting part of it, but that the process, the post hunt process, they're so symbiotic. They they were so important to learning, to really complete yourself as a hunter. I think learning how to process your own meat, learning how to butcher your own. My brother taught me so much. When we first started processing our own meat, I, uh, my brother taught me everything I know. 
and um, now I'm kind of on my own with it. And uh, it, it's, I love it. I absolutely love butchering my own animal. And I'm still learning. I mean, there are cuts that I just don't understand, you know, that I'm constantly researching or asking questions about, you know. Absolutely. I um, really forgot the question, by the way, and I'm sort of just rambling here. So no, that was, that was, that was. Sorry if I, don't, if I didn't answer your question. No, but. that was good. That was, uh, I mean, it still just ties into what you learn as a, as a young, a young kid. And, and like you said, if you were able to tell that version of Rich Malloy, what this version of Rich Malloy knows, it's, it's just, it just pays itself in gold. Uh, I have one more, I have one more hunting story. A couple of years ago, I, sh- I took a shot at a deer at about seven or eight yards and I completely missed the animal, just missed it outright. Right. He ran to 52 yards and I put an arrow through his lungs and he dropped right there. And I think I tell people that story a lot because it's never, it's never over. You know, the hunt is never over. I missed a shot and the animal ran. I missed it at six yards. Nothing is a layup in hunting. Nothing is a layup. Even that six, seven yard shot that, that could be the easiest shot to some people, and you still miss. To me, I was like, "Oh my god, this thing is! I can smell this thing. This is game over." Boom, missed it. Ran to fifty-two yards. I was like, "Shit, this is going to be the longest shot I've ever taken in twenty years of hunting," and I nailed it. And if I had kind of like stomped my feet and pouted and kind of like got my head out of the game after missing that animal, um, then I probably would have never been able to take that second shot but being able to mentally stay in it while you're still in that moment of having a deer in front of you is super important um so i like to tell that story to, to younger new hunters about nothing's a layup even that six yard shot granted i would prefer the six yard shot over the 52 yard shot but um you got to mentally stay in it for the entire time that you're one one-on-one with that animal is there stay. is there a part of you saying that maybe you should have taken taken that second shot where you had that that and you and you choked and at that time your your head was in the game or you just basically choked and that animal deserved to to live another day or or anything is there any any of that no i think that i i really let my my body sort of take over if i didn't feel confident taking that shot i would have never taken it and I don't know why I took the shot. I just took the shot, the second shot. You know, to me, it was it was there. It was a perfect broadside shot. I was calm. I I used my rangefinder. I was able to re- I was able to adjust my sight and everything. All of this is happening within a ten to fifteen second window. You know, where shoot the deer, he runs. I grab another arrow, grab my rangefinder. I actually dropped my rangefinder after out of the tree and pull back, take the shot mentally telling myself to slow down and calm down. And if that deer runs away, he wins. But if he's going to stay in there, I'm going to take my shot because I'm confident and I'm good at that. I'm a good hunter and I can take that shot. So I'm not going to give that. If that deer wants to book it, I lose. That's his win. And that's how it was supposed to play out. But I'm there to hunt. Then I'm going to take that shot. Sure. Well played. I think anyone would have would have done what you did and, and i'm glad you were able you were able to to gather yourself and, and I, let my, I let my confidence sort of make those decisions sure. and, and if i didn't t- it, it was the right thing to do to take the shot because it it my body was just telling me to do it i guess yeah, yeah cool. uh all right now 
uh, now that you said that awesome story, uh, you're also part of an amazing organization or you represent a pretty amazing brand. You are an ambassador for Hunt to Eat. Tell me a little bit about uh, these guys. So the Hunt to Eat crew, they are amazing. I have never learned so much about ethical hunting practices, um, the public land movement, uh, the, the recipes that we share with each other. Um, Hunt to Eat is a company based out West and they are big time advocates for the public land movement. And they take on a big, um, they have a lot of different people that they've chosen to be their ambassadors. Um, men, women, people who are part of the LGBT community, black, white, it, it doesn't matter who you are. The hunt to eat community is, is everyone. It is everyone. And we accept everyone and it's amazing. And the biggest thing I've, I've gotten from being a hunt to eat ambassador is, is the amount that I've learned, you know, um, it's, it's endless, endless amounts of, of information that we, transfer between each other and onto the between in the hunty community and sometimes i feel like i i'm i fall behind when it comes to learning about the um things like the public land movement you know um i got a lot to learn about how that started and what hunter hunter eats role was there and um and um i just love uh, motting is a great guy um, he has helped us out a lot and he gives us an opportunity to, for us to really, um, be a part of his brand and help our brand, you know? So that's awesome. And I think you embody, uh, an ambassador for this company, just the way you would think you would someone who, uh, like you said, you grew up and you've personally taken these, these same, uh, core values, if you will, if hunting has, and you've, you've been implying them to your, your fishing and your hunting, uh, just like you normally would. So the, the partnership between you and hunt to eat was pretty much meant to be. And, uh, you're probably the, one of the best representations of what this company has to offer. So I think it's, it's a great partnership for both parties. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been great. It's, it's nonstop (laughs) and it's just a great crew of people. I've met a lot of awesome people. Absolutely. Uh, all right. I'm super excited to get into the next top, this next topic, uh, wild game cooking. Um, I, I, I know absolutely nothing about wild game. I I don't pretend to, um, I almost choose not to cook a wild game because honestly, I don't know what it tastes like. It's almost better for me to, to ask the questions and, and get behind someone and have someone cook me, uh, a wild game, be like, this is what it's supposed to taste like, et cetera, et cetera. But you have an awesome page filled with amazing cooks. You, you do show a lot of your cooks. Uh, what are your some of favorite, what are some of your favorite cuts of meat to cook? Um, shank right off the bat. So the, the, the deer shank, which is the lower part of the leg, is a part of the body that, you know, gets thrown to the dogs, gets thrown in the trash, gets thrown into a grinder and turned into burgers, which is an awful cut of meat to, to turn into a burger because it's filled with sinew and silver skin and collagen. and it's. But when you take that shank and you can apply heat for six to eight hours with a little bit of red wine and stock and what you get that breakdown of that silver skin and that sinew and adds that flavor right back into the dish i think the shank is i I don't know if it's my favorite cut it's right up there with the neck i would say neck and shank are slow cooked in red wine and stock 
that to me is the best version of venison. Oh, I bet you that neck is just tender, right? A- it, it, you can't eat it like a steak or you can't really eat it like a roast. You have to, you have to slow cook it. Yeah. Um, you have to apply heat to low, low, low heat to it. Um, because there's so much fat, there's so much collagen and sinew in there that if that doesn't break down, you're just going to be chewing all day. Sure. You know? Um, but yeah, the shanks in the neck to me is the, is when I serve that to people, they're like, Oh my God, this tastes so good. Like I would never know that this was like venison. It kind of tastes like goat or lamb, or it's a little bit oily. It has this great mouth texture. Um, it's a little bit waxy. Um, it's good. It's just, those are my favorite. Backstrap is great. Grilling backstrap is amazing, but it's kind of this one note flavor. It sort of yep. tastes like meat with whatever you put on it. If you rub it with a, with a coffee rub or just salt and pepper, it sort of tastes like meat, lean meat with your seasoning. That's sure. back. It's super tender. It's amazing. I love eating it, but it's kind of this one note sort of. Flavor. Yeah, it's absolutely. And backstrips or uh, tenderloins, one of those meats that is so tender that if you, you use an overpowering rub, just or even a mild rub, or you, you dress it up with some bacon, you lose that that uh, that beautiful flavor of that of that cut. I think I think wrapping a backstrap in bacon is a disservice to venison. This is is <laughs> I feel like this should be a PSA for getting people to stop wrapping their their backstraps in bacon. Please, please stop doing it. It does not need it. It is so good without the bacon. It doesn't need it. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know the shank in the neck. There's it's there's so many different notes in 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 those in those cuts because you're getting the fatty collagen portion of that meat, and then you're getting the the rich lean protein and you can really taste the difference in it i mean when i'm doing a stock when i'm making a, a, a venison stock and i got like a little bit of, of just weird bits left in that knee i will literally open up my stock pot take a fork and just eat it because <laughs> it is just Perfect. so good um yeah so backstrap has its place it'll always have a place um it's an excellent post-workout meal but I think for serving people venison, I just I love giving them shank. I love making barbacoa out of neck. I love making a ragu out out of shank and just serving that to people, and it blows their mind. They're they 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 really aren't expecting it because they're thinking this that it's going to be this really bloody and gamey. They can't even describe game, and they're thinking that they're going to taste it, but they have no idea what it tastes like. And shanks and necks are one and two for me when it comes to comes to cooking venison for sure. Well said. Uh, definitely need to try some neck and shank here. Um, now, you kind of answered this a little bit in the hunting portion, but you do most of your butchering of your harvesting, of your kilt? I do everything. I've never had another person butcher my animal for me, and I will never have, have another See, person. See, that's amazing. And that's a part I lack in. Um, obviously, I'm getting the cuts of meat delivered, or I, I buy them. I know nothing about the actual uh, the butchering. It, it's and identifying some of the meats unless they're placed out in front of me. I mean, I do, I do a little bit. I can buy uh, certain portions and, and cut them up nice. But I think to actually have that skill is, is awesome. And you understand uh, the different cuts of meats and, and uh, the textures and, and the tenderness and where the fat part is. I think that's great. And it's a great skill to have. And it's just, man, it goes hand in hand to what you represent as far as being uh, – just able to 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 have 
a harvest and serve it up deliciously and and capture that moment it's great yeah you know butchering your your own animal you get it 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 is an emotional piece to it you know but you you learn a lot you learn a lot about the anatomy of the animal as well you know you i i'm able to see what my arrow actually did when it went through um i'm able to understand where the different um where all the muscles come together when you shoot an animal and you give it to your butcher with the skin on it you have no idea what's underneath that it's a completely different ball game when you're standing in there in front of an animal without skin on it. And um, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about the muscles that you're eating. Um, you learn a lot about the appropriate way to cook those muscles, those different, you know, some people are eating steaks out of a muscle that shouldn't be made into steak. Some people are braising different muscles that shouldn't be braised. You know, there's an application to every different muscle. You know, there's a cooking application to different, to every single muscle. And when some people say, oh, venison is, really really tough i'm like well you ate a piece of meat that needs to be cooked for seven hours mm -hmm. you know? and you can see that when you're butchering it you really understand all where all the different muscles play um what type of sinew is on it what type of fat was on your animal as well and you give it to a butcher the majority of the time they're just going to turn it into sausage or or grind animal and it's just it's to me it's all part of the hunt you know, you, never, have those, you have some of those horror stories that are from butcher that where you, you get mixed meat or it may not even be your kill. So yeah. yeah. And you'll never know. That's the sad part. Yeah. You know, you'll just never know. Like you, you, you have a butcher who's doing 30 deer in a day and like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, my, I'm not going to clean out my grinder right now. I'm just going to, Oh, there's a pound left here. Let me just throw this person that, or let me just throw a couple pounds into my freezer for myself. And yeah. you know, I can turn a, I can turn a 110 pound dough into over 60 pounds of meat. Jeez. You know? Yeah. Like, Whereas it adds to the experience. You, you give it to a butcher, you might only get 30, you know, right. they're throwing away a lot of the bones. You're not getting any bones back from stock. You're losing your neck to the grinder. You're losing your shanks. You might not even get your shanks back. Yeah. And like I said, it adds to the whole, uh, the whole experience and it's a great skill to learn and, and be able to have. That's awesome. You do most of, uh, you do a lot of cooking, but you also do a lot of smoking on your trigger, correct? Yep. Yep. I do. Um, I, I, it's just another tool in my tool belt, you know, and sometimes I'll use the trigger as a smoker, but sometimes I'll just use it as an outdoor oven, you know? Absolutely. Uh, what's your pellet choice for wild game? Oh man, I don't have a choice. Actually. I don't think, um, I've, I've never, cooked venison on a Traeger long enough for it to really absorb that flavor quality, right? Um, I think that for me, when I'm doing a slow cook, I like to cook wild game in my oven as opposed to the Traeger. I think the heat's just a little too dry. Um, and with it being such a lean meat, I don't, I don't think that that really lends itself well to a longer cook. But right now I have cherry in my hopper right now and i have like three bags of cherry that i'm going to go through for the next couple months so you ask me that in a couple months i might have a better answer um but i've used hickory and i've used a lot of cherry oh right on I, and i always i'm I'm kind of the same way as far as i like a milder uh pellet or wood flavor just because i like the actual meat to take to be the star of the show or the rub or uh de de depending on the dish but I know that smoke imparts a certain flavor and I don't want that flavor to be uh, 
the star of the meal. So, yeah, you know, exactly. Again, it's just another tool. Like there are times where I'm using my trigger to reverse sear, right? Where I might put that trigger on 225 for 45 minutes. I might get a little bit of smoke flavor out of that, but then it's going right back onto. I'm either going to crank that trigger up to 500 degrees and sear it to finish it, or I'm going to throw it onto my gas grill at 800 degrees to finish it or 700 degrees to finish it. Sure. Uh, it's fun. Having the Traeger at my disposal is awesome because I can use it in a lot of different ways. I can, I can sear with it at 500. I can, you know, warm up a dish the same way you would warm up something in your oven. Um, I, I use it as, as an outdoor oven and a smoker. Yeah, absolutely. And then the recipes you find for an oven can just be used on a smoker too. It's just so yeah. wonderful. Uh, cookies on a smoker are phenomenal. I've never done that actually, but maybe I'll give that a shot. It's weird. I, I wouldn't suggest maybe like a hickory or mesquite, but like a, a cherry, apple, fruit wood. It's it's actually really good. Yeah, you know, I don't. Ba- I'm not a baker. It's too um, too much science involved. Oh, I dude, I, I buy the rolled uh, cookies and I love. There you go. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it's no baking going on here. Actually, I do. It was fun. I, my, my wife and I. <clears throat> excuse me. My wife and I got into uh, a little bread experiment, and it turned out really great. Uh, it was super easy, easy to, um, anyways, how much wild game meat is in your diet? Is this, is this your primal primary, primarily source of protein? Absolutely. I would say probably eating venison. Oh man. Five to eight meals a week, maybe more. That's I would awesome. say, I would say it would, it would go as venison and then seafood because living in Boston, I mean, endless supply of fresh amazing seafood i would say venison and seafood are one one a one b and then i don't eat a lot of beef um i i don't know why i just haven't found a good source to get my hands on um i love chickens i love taking a whole chicken and throwing it on my trigger i think that that's where actually where the trigger shines the most is spatchcocking and smoking a chicken um probably do one whole chicken a week and then the rest of the meals are filled with fresh scallops when they're in season, um, sea bass, uh, salmon, um, and then obviously venison, venison burgers, venison, pulled venison, like venison neck for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And you said you have about 150 pounds of uh, venison still in your freezer? Probably a little bit less now since we're in quarantine and all I'm really eating right now is seafood and medicine. <laughs> but yeah, we're probably still over 100 pounds. I just grinded and packed 50 pounds uh, last week. And so you think that, that amount of meat will get you through the year? It should. It should. I usually slow down the closer we get. So I have some in case I have a slow start to the season. Um, and then, but I cook all my long cook cuts over the winter. So all the cuts I have left now are either burgers or grilling cuts. Gotcha. So I don't like to turn my oven on and leave my oven on for eight hours during the summer. So all of my, all the venison I'm eating now is my burger cuts and my steak cuts. So a lot of backstrap. I still, I still have five backstrap, full backstraps in my, in my freezer because I, I don't like to cook those over the winter. I like to stand outside when it's hot out and throw a backstrap on the grill. Oh yeah. People are like, how the hell do you still have backstrap? I actually eat my backstrap last. I eat my, my braising cuts first when it's cold out, you know, that can make a, make a ramen, make a, make a, uh, a ragu, pulled venison, barbacoa, whatever, venison tacos, 
venison with, with with some pasta but a lot of my um those big big like full front shoulders those are all cooked in the winter and then right now you guys are going to be seeing a lot of backstrap on my instagram coming up here over the next couple months perfect backstrap. all right man um that was awesome we're going to switch this up to uh, one of the more popular segments of this show. Questions from the gram. This is an opportunity where uh, anyone's allowed to ask Rich a question. We got some great questions coming up. You ready, buddy? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, fellow alumni of the podcast, Mr. Cooking with Swiss, Chris. Uh, he wanted to know if reincarnation is true, what fish would you want to come back as? Oh Jesus! Um, a bluefish. I would. I want to want to come back as a big, big ass forty pound bluefish because those things are vicious. They eat everything. They a lot of people throw them back because they don't like eating them. How about that, right? So I'd, I'd probably have a longer life. And you'd be scarred up, but you'd have a long life. They have like they're like the wolves of the water up here they are they hunt in packs they just they're they go berserk and they rip apart pogies they attack stripers they got big teeth and they're just like the villains of the water right so um stripe bass get caught and eaten you know so if i want to survive i want to be a bluefish i want to be a big ass bluefish well played heck yeah. yeah uh next question at chef pete Z Malloy. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is your brother. All right, here we go. He he wanted to know. Uh, he wants to know, where did you get your cooking skills from? Funny. Funny that he would ask that question. Um, my brother, Pete. Um, he is my the number one kitchen influence. I literally would have zero skill if it wasn't for what he has taught me. Um, he is an incredible executive chef. Um, he has worked under James Beard nominated chefs, um, French trained. He went to a great culinary school here in Boston and he is super skilled. He just doesn't show it on his Instagram. That's the problem with him. Um, sorry, Pete, but he, uh, Everything I know, every knife skill I have, every butchering skill I have comes directly from him. Um, a lot of my inspirations come from local restaurants. Boston is a huge foodie city, and I'm re really one of my hobbies is just going out to restaurants and diving into that menu and learning about that menu and asking questions to the chef or the staff about some of the spices or ingredients that they use. So a lot of my influence can come from certain restaurants in the area and recreating those dishes and um just being introduced to new food so my inspiration is definitely pete and the food scene in boston absolutely just learning about different cuisines i have a lot of chef friends i have um, my other buddy nate he's he's been really really helpful to me i can ask him anything and he'll he'll fire off a bunch of different answers and I have really good resources at my fingertips all the time, 24 seven. So I am definitely really, really lucky. I like to get creative in the kitchen too. There are a lot of uh, spice shops in Boston as well. And I'll just go to a spice shop and walk around and just kind of blindly grab spices. And I'll say, okay, how do I want to in incorporate this into my next meal? You know? So, but yeah. Good, That's good, amazing good. to have an executive chef as a brother. And I, uh, yeah. just, it I, helps. It I mean, it helps. works. I mean, like everything that you're doing and that you that you do just piggybacks on each other and just helps every aspect of 
uh, of what you want to do and accomplish in your life. It's awesome. Now I've gotten to a point where my brother just tells me to figure it out. I'll ask him a question. He'll goes, you know, the answer, figure it out. I'm like, come on, man, throw me a bone. He's like, I already did. So right now I'm doing a lot of my learning on my own, but if I get really stuck, then he'll, he'll come to, to, to help. Right. Right. Uh, he, he sounds like he's, he's going to be your younger brother then? He's my older brother. We're less than a year apart. Oh, man. And yeah. he, you got the name carrying name. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot about how the younger brother actually got the, the, uh, the name passed down. Yeah, it's it's it is. It is interesting. Sorry, Pete. But uh, thanks for the question, buddy. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, at mtn underscore marty at mount marty uh bare bones fly fishing setup what do you recommend bare bones fly fishing setup all right um that's a tough question because it can get expensive but i have a sage method with my cheeky 475 with an intermediate line that is my fly fishing setup for saltwater my sage method nine weight with my cheeky 475 and and a intermediate Rio floating uh in intermediate Rio fly fishing line. That's my that's my go to setup. Right on. Mount Marty, looking forward to see you uh do some fly fishing up there in Colorado now. Uh next question oh, at that, six that, that setup that setup actually might not work for him in Colorado. I'll tell you. Oh, that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. well, go ahead and uh message uh Rich Malloy who hook you up with some yeah. uh <laughs> better suiting material equipment uh at 617 fly fisher uh he wants to know if you want to join him on an elk hunt yeah man let's do it anytime let's go i need to pop my elk cherry so um <laughs> let's do this dude you would have you could probably live off an of elk for two years i need to kill an elk if there's anybody listening here that wants to take me elk hunting it i think about it daily i i will watch videos of elks bugling I'm not kidding. Like, I'll sit there and my mom will be like, what the hell are you watching? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just, just let me do this. I need this. <laughs> you would understand. Yeah. Uh, next, quest, next question. Uh, at Joe Gugino. I probably Gugino. slaughtered your name. How did you say it? Gugino. Gugino. All right, yeah. buddy. Um, the Costa man, Mr. Costa. Uh, yeah. Costa, is this your eyewear of choice? Um, this is not a question, by the way. But is this our Costa's your eyewear of choice uh, when you're out in the water? Yep, absolutely. I um, I've been lucky enough to have some friends in the industry who can, you know, help a brother out when it comes to eyewear. And Costa, for sure, would be um, my go-to eyewear. I guess definitely. Perfect. I mean the that lens they have is amazing for the the yeah, water. and it just keeps getting better, you know. And I have different types of lenses for different fishing applications. If I'm on flats, if it's if it's a little bit cloudy out, if we have a super high sun, I have a, a pair of shades for every every situation for sure. Yeah, and you don't realize if you have a shitty pair of uh, sunglasses. Uh, I work outside all day, and uh, your eyes being tired just from that that constant sun but with uh, a good pair of glasses man you're set it ruins uh, my day when i when i leave my shades at home it oh really, yeah it, it is awful being on the water without having sunglasses it it is it's it's brutal never it's ever brutal, it's just as bad as leaving your flyer on. yeah 
or your quiver or your quiver of arrows at your truck. You know, I, I feel like I can't fish without polarized lenses. I'm I'm just I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a prima donna about it, but it, it's no. So like once you take that step up, there's no going back. Yeah, it's so important. Uh, he wants to know uh, what's your favorite snacks. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> so I'm definitely a foodie, and all my friends know that I'm a foodie. And when it when I just um snacks are always within arm's length of me, but I think there's a difference between meals, food, snacks. So I'm gonna uh, I'll, we'll say snacks are something that you can open up out of a bag. How about that? Right? I would say Cheez Its. That's probably my favorite snack. Oh. Actually. I'm going back. I'm taking that back. Cape Cod Originals. No idea what those are. Cape Cod chips? You don't know what Cape Cod chips are? Maybe I do. I'll have to I'm check. Sending you a, I'm sending you a bag of Cape Cod Originals. Perfect. I'm sending you a bag of Cape Cod Originals. That is happening. Absolutely. I'm assuming they're they're manufactured right there in Cape Cod. It's all about... It's it's yeah. it's Boston in a bag, I'm, I'm assuming. It's Boston in a bag, for sure. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. Uh, next question comes from the official sponsor of this podcast at Reload Rub. Uh, head over to the website, ReloadRub.com. Get yourself about $100 worth of rubs. Use promo code CODA10. You'll be set. Uh, grab a shirt, grab a hat, grab some stickers. Uh, great people. Uh, can't say n- nothing bad about them. I love them. Joel and Stacy are the best. Uh, they would like to know what's your most memorable harvest that you've caught or killed. Uh, we kind of talked about this, but is there anything else you want to add? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I can answer that question because to me, they're just all so, they're so important to me. I, I can't differ, differentiate them. Um, I, I, when I was in high school, I shot a deer through the liver that, ran about two miles and on my walk back along a river i ended up finding him after i was just done looking for him and he was kind of like in my brother's in my backyard sort of that like there was a river that went behind my brother's house at the time and um and he was like right there and it was like the easiest recovery i was like oh my god like here he is and so that one that that it was actually I don't know what year. I don't know even know how old I was. I was pretty young. But I that was one of those moments I had to like jump into the river and drag him out. It was freezing out and didn't have a canoe and it was awful. But it was one of the harder hunts I've had. The hardest recovery. I was like I was so devastated that I was never going to be able to find this animal and it just like popped up in front of me on my walk back. So hey. that was fun. Heck yeah. Uh, next question at you're gonna have to tell me what this last name at Morgan underscore Mattioli. Mattioli. Yeah, Morgan Mattioli. Mattioli. <laughs> he wants to know, what's your favorite fly? <laughs> uh, depends. But if I'm fishing flats in Plymouth, it's going to be the Goldie, otherwise known as the Sparkle. Um, but I am, a, I am a sucker for a good flat wing. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a good like maybe olive over white flat wing i think that that's going to be my f- favorite fly but uh, if i'm fishing flats i want something sparkly um maybe some red dumbbell eyes maybe a little bit of a shrimp pattern there but yeah the goldie or um or a flat wing 
uh, olive over white flat, flat wing for sure. Perfect. You heard it. You heard it from Rich himself. Yeah. Uh, next, next question from um, my good friend at Spencer Crooksy, official fellow Potty Mouth podcast member, uh, Reload Rub Squad member. Uh, he wanted to know what camo pattern would you sacrifice to end the coronavirus? Oh my gosh. I don't know if I understand the question, but I have, I really own a hunt on a lot of Sitka and I don't know if I could give it up. And I'm (laughs) coronavirus is staying. I'm kind of I'm having a hell of a time sort of just hanging out in my backyard right now. So uh, I'm going to keep my Sitka. (laughs) All right. Coronavirus. You got to find a way to distinguish. You got to find a way out because I'm not giving you my, uh, I'm not giving you my incinerator suit. I'll tell you that. You've taken my life. My my, yeah. you've yeah. you've taken enough, and I can't take my camo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he also wanted to know: uh, Would you consider doing a bear hunt with a trad bow? No, I wouldn't, <laughs> um, because I'm not confident enough to shoot a bear with a trad bow. If I had the confidence to, absolutely. And I've watched videos of people hunting bear with trad bows. It is so intense. So intense. Is that one video of the black bear coming into this guy's like area and the bear like kind of comes up into his ground blind and he has a trad bow and he sort of like pokes at it and then the bear walks away and he has this perfect maybe like 15 yard quartering away shot that he takes and super intense, super intense. Oh man, I can imagine heartbeat beating out of your chest yeah uh last question here at dogs official calm uh they want to know what's your favorite family tradition favorite family tradition um man it's putting me on the spot i have two uh super bowl sunday my family we make these big giant egg sandwiches and we call them stubs, S-T-U-B-S, stubs. And we've been doing it since the Cowboys played the Steelers in 95, maybe, 96. And um, we all get together and my dad or my brother or me, but it doesn't matter who's making them, we'll just put together just these epic epic egg sandwiches with sausage jimmy dean sausage big giant english muffins it's it's a mess you feel like hell but it's just that's a great family tradition and then christmas eve um we get together with a family friend and we have a christmas eve dinner that is just that's family to me you know what i mean it's i would say those two traditions is my christmas eve dinner and um and stubs on Super Bowl Sunday. Absolutely perfect. Can't go wrong, especially uh, with you and uh, your brother Pete at probably at the helm of all this cooking. It's it's yeah. got to be a winning. It it it. Uh, listen, when we're both in the kitchen, I am taking orders, and and I am playing sous chef. Hell, I'll wash dishes. Jesus, I'll do whatever yeah. he said. We're getting a good meal. Either way, we're getting a good meal. It doesn't matter. Absolutely, and you're with family, so it's all good. Yeah exactly all right mr rich you are officially off the grill this was a great time i learned a lot hopefully everyone else did um your page is one of my favorite pages to look at it flows really good there's so much to learn from you give a different perspective uh, 
once I saw your page and, and I followed you for a little bit, I, I, I thought to myself, I got to have Rich on. You took the bait. It was great. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let everyone know how they can find you and, and what can they expect coming up from you? Um, at Rich Malloy three on Instagram is where you can follow me. And it's just a lot of food, you know, and then you might see a couple stripers during the summer, but the majority of my story content is, is food, um, all different types. It's not just meat. It can be anything. Uh, right now I have some marinated feta that I did last night on there. Um, my posts tend to be more food related right now, but once the stripers come in, you guys will be seeing that. So hopefully you enjoy, right? Absolutely. Uh, appreciate take, taking the time, Rich. Uh, I hope you had a great time. Uh, thank you once again. Absolutely. And hey, thanks for having me, Paul. Anytime, brother. Uh, we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening in, everyone. Uh, we'll see you on the next one.